0: This is a Vault Studios production. I'm Reed Redmond.
1: I'm Spencer Brudig. I'm Will Johnson. This show contains graphic material and is meant for mature audiences.
0: This week on True Crime Chronicles. We want to, uh,
2: as investigators, we want to put the puzzle pieces together and we want to see what the picture looks like. We want to see how it ends.
3: Do you think Robert is out there somewhere?
2: You know, 20 years ago I
4: said don't speculate. Uh, today I, I don't know.
1: Fisher could easily be surviving in the wild or be your next-door
5: neighbor. 39-year-old Robert Fisher disappeared in April of 2001, leaving in his wake violence, destruction, and confusion. This house is going to be a total loss. A home rigged to explode, a wife shot to death, two kids murdered by having their throats slashed, and an entire community asking why this happened and where Robert could have gone.
3: And when you hear the name Robert Fisher, what goes through your mind?
5: Oh, a lot of trauma.
2: I've been assigned the Robert Fisher case since 2014, so coming up on seven years now.
5: This is Scottsdale police detective John Heinzelman.
2: It is a full-time job when it's all said and done. There's a lot of there were a lot of moving parts back then. Uh, there's a lot of things that uh, you sort of relook at and start to take, especially with new technologies, to see uh, is there something else we can test? Is there something else we can do? Something that we may have missed uh, along the way. So it's always there's always something that that you can dig through the case
5: and find something to do with it. Robert Fisher has been a suspect in the murders of his wife and two children for 20 years now. His last known sighting was at an ATM near his home, where police say he took out $280. His wife, Mary's Toyota 4Runner, which is in the background of that ATM security footage, was then located 10 days after the explosion, over 100 miles away from Scottsdale, deep in the woods of the Tonto National Forest.
2: The last true piece uh, that we have is the vehicle that we found, that we found it up in northern Arizona on April 20th, 10 days after... discovery of the murder um, that's the last positive uh, if you want to say sighting that we had so that's the last piece of evidence we have now again was he was he trying to misdirect us was he saying i'm here knowing that the vehicle would be found and then he decided to go south or was this his last place he was not expecting us to find the car as quick as we did Uh, that's another mystery that we need to that we need answers
3: to
5: that vehicle found in the Tonto national forest is where robert fisher's sparse breadcrumb trail ends by all appearances he disappeared into the woods although the person who called in the tip about the vehicle never actually saw robert fisher himself
2: that tip came in it came into us third hand we didn't we didn't exactly as the police department we didn't interview that that tipster uh, for another three weeks by the time we actually got a hold of him and were able to discern uh, what he saw, the media was very predominant at, at that time. We had, we had told about the vehicle. We told about the case. Uh, we knew that he liked to frequent up in that area outside of Payson and and in the woods there. So that particular area was getting a lot of coverage for Robert Fisher. the The thought is... Did he just park the vehicle and wander off again, there were some there were some inconsistencies or some confusion with some of the things where the was the door open there was a first report was the door was open and then in later interviews he said no he couldn't he couldn't remember if the door was open. There was a first thought that was reported that said he saw him and then again at the follow-up interview that turned to well, I didn't see him, I saw the vehicle and then I saw the dog
5: the family's vehicle, the family's dog but No Robert Fisher.
3: They never actually saw him.
5: KPNX reporter Erica Stapleton.
3: Investigators were well aware that he liked to camp, he liked to hunt. He'd gone on camping trips, sometimes solo, in days before. I don't know if they would venture to say he was a survivalist, but- it seemed that he did have the skill set and the knowledge to be able to live off the land, at least in some capacity. And if you're a person who's trying to evade law enforcement or go on the run, he definitely had some knowledge of the area that he's last known to believe to be in. And he definitely had some knowledge of at least the Arizona wilderness. So it's not without, you know, people back then knew that he was someone that was familiar with Arizona's high country and that he was a person that was an experienced camper, experienced hunter, and was very versed in being in this Arizona terrain.
5: One theory is that this was Robert Fisher's plan, to hide out in the forest indefinitely and live off the land. Some even think he could still be out there two decades later.
2: One of the prevailing theories is that, that he is, he's a survivalist, that he's out there living uh, in the woods. Uh, th- for me, that's a little hard to to grasp, just because you have you would have to have something. You don't have electricity. You'd need supplies. You'd need things. You can't just live off the land. Uh, that I would have, that I would assume. Having said that, you can go here in Arizona. You can go five or ten miles away from Payson or away from one of these cities, and you're completely in the wilderness. And uh, for years, you could not see another soul, even though you might hear the buzz of traffic from a from a highway just just over the that next rise. so um, that brings an interesting dynamic to it to see okay, is it possible that he 's still out there? Uh, we have to keep everything open, so we have to every every tip, everything we get we have to we have to think like that.
5: but twenty years is a long time for anyone anywhere to try to live off the land.
3: From everyone we've spoken to, it is highly unlikely that he is still out there living off the land. Although back then, again, people knew he was capable of camping. He was versed in the terrain. But to do that for 20 years, especially when you're trying to hide, is really tough to do. We went to a survivalist here in Arizona to ask him, hey, how likely is this? And he basically said there's a 0% chance that someone would still be living, especially in the same location, for this long without any sign of detection. So first off, you don't really leave no trace. You would leave some footprints, especially in this part of Arizona. It gets, you know, there's snow. So It would be very, very, on two ends. It would be hard not to leave a trace if there is, especially when it's colder, but it would also be harder to survive just because the elements, it can get, you know, below freezing up there. And if you are a person that, you know, can't necessarily freely walk around and get some resources if you're trying to avoid law enforcement or really anyone, then that's highly unlikely that you would still be out there. You would need to make some sort of shelter. You would need to do something for food. And the resources up there would just be so limited and it would be really, really hard to you know, restock and replenish the little that you actually have access to.
5: Another theory involves the Tonto National Forest's underground caves, a vast network of potential hiding places.
3: So the caves were another theory that maybe... Robert hid in one of the caves and was able to, you know, escape that way or go through, um, you know, hide in a cave while crew searched and then eventually absconded beyond that. But there's a lot we don't necessarily know about the caves. Back then, um, and looking through, you know, hours of footage, these caves um, are essentially like a honeycomb underground. If you can think of, you know, a honeycomb with all the little holes and lines, they're really dense and really hard to kind of navigate, um, especially at a surface level, and especially if, you know, law enforcement or the folks that were out there looking were not necessarily trained in spelunking. So initially, it was really challenging to explore all of the caves up there because. Um, for a lot of reasons, because they're you know they're just dark and small and cramped, and the oxygen levels are lower. And the cave system up there wasn't necessarily mapped out very well because it is vast, and it is something that not a lot of people, you know, explore, or it would be very dangerous to explore. So at one point in time, um, in the early days of you know them searching after they found Mary's vehicle in those woods. They actually brought in a sewer camera, something designed to go and snake through a sewer and get images there. They brought that in to search some of the caves um, that they had access to in the area. And again, it didn't show any signs of people being inside. The only thing that investigators found were that there were some footprints outside the market or outside one of the cave entrances that was nearby where the vehicle was. But again, they were never able to confirm if those were Robert Fisher's footprints or whose footprints they were. Um, But they definitely didn't find any one, at least that they could see, inside that particular cave entrance at that time.
5: Detective Heinzelman says police and spelunkers have cleared a lot of the cave system. But that searching all of the caves might not even be possible.
2: We've looked. There are different um, spelunking groups and things up in that area. There is... As a matter of fact, where his vehicle was found, there was sort of a little uh, a little wash kind of that led to the opening of a cave. And when you think of caves, some of these are no more than just hollowed out six or eight foot spaces underneath trees, for example. so um, and then some of them can be when they open up and they're and they're large. So there's a possibility that um, he did. He may have fallen into something and either hurt himself or couldn't get out. Or that was the place that he decided this is, I'm going to take my own life. So uh, I don't think we'd ever be able to to search all of them. But I know with as much media media attention that there was and with the groups up there um, talking with Gila County sheriff's deputies and things like that, they'll tell you that this place has been searched thoroughly by by all of these different groups. They've, they have names for all of these different caverns and caves, and they've looked through all of them in, in hopes of finding him. And no luck. And no luck so far.
5: This cave system also crosses over into tribal land. In fact, the edge of the Fort Apache Indian Reservation is less than a mile from where Robert abandoned his vehicle, something he may have been aware of.
3: If Robert Fisher were able to go you know, into a cave and up you know, onto the Fort Apache Indian Reservation, it might have been easier for him to escape because the law enforcement would have to get permission to be on that property. So that was another layer to things. But looking back through the archives, we found that, you know, the tribal investigators were also involved in the search. They were notified. And there was actually some signs of footprints um, leading their way, too. And they, you know, searched as far as they could until the footprints ran out. And ultimately, they turned up nothing, too. So, There's a lot of, you know, speculation about the caves, whether he used it as a way to escape, whether he used it to hide and maybe abscond later, but there's just no way to know. And I want to point out, too, having been to that area 20 years later, not much has changed. It's still a very dense forest. The roads are still made of dirt. There's still very few people that traverse and travel and even, you know, live up there. But seeing some of the mouths of the caves, I can understand how difficult it would have been for investigators to look through all of them because some of them just start as holes, like it looks like a rabbit hole or just, you know, a hole. Like you would see, you know, hollowed out at the bottom of a tree. So these are very small beginnings that could, if you, you know, ultimately dig in and go deeper, span out to this massive cave system underground. So it was hard to know exactly where he could have gone, if he could have gone into these caves, and they're incredibly hard to search. Not to mention, if you went into a cave, maybe let's just say, for example, that he did go into a cave and was able to crawl in, the oxygen levels would be so, would you know, start to diminish, and the light source would also start to diminish. So it would be really hard to navigate your way through a system without a map, without lights, you know, without the resources that you would need to go, you know, on a cave excursion, not to mention just, you know, being out in the woods, trying to evade law enforcement trying to evade sight. If you go into this cave system, that's a really dangerous path to try and take to try and escape. Is it impossible? No. But is it unlikely? That's what investigators think. It's probably unlikely that he, you know, used the caves or used the caves to a degree as a way to get out, or at least knowingly as a way to get out.
5: Yet another theory is that Fisher didn't leave on foot at all that he had a second mode of transportation lined up.
3: Initially, at the time, some investigators thought that maybe he got a ride out and, you know, eventually left the area Um, because this, as remote as it is, there's actually, you know, Young Highway is not far off from this area. It's, you know, partly paved, partly dirt road, and cars do travel on it, so it wouldn't have been impossible for him, you know, to get to a roadway even though he is, you know, or at least the car. Is hidden in this, you know, deep part of the woods. It's not impossible to walk toward a roadway. Um, but over time, some investigators believe that, you know, there has been no evidence of anyone helping him either.
2: There's no indication that there's anybody involved. Everybody that we spoke with from family and friends uh, at the time, I think we've eliminated everyone. But there's always that that outlier that we wouldn't know about, maybe some coworker, maybe some friend that we didn't reach out to, uh, could have helped him. You sort of put it into a human uh, perspective on that and say, how could uh, the crime itself is as heinous as, as it is? How could anybody help him? But um, it, we don't know. We don't know the relationships.
3: So it's kind of a conundrum. Well, what what actually happened? They you know those answers still remain, but. You know, to think that maybe a family member or someone or just a random person on the road could have helped him. Investigators think it's highly, you know, unlikely because no one has ever come forward with that information. No one, you know, that's a big secret to hold for all these years. If you maybe helped him escape or maybe that was, you know, a way out for him or if there was, you know, he had any sort of assistance, whether, the people that might have been involved knew it or not. It, you know, Given the magnitude of this case and the publicity, investigators believe someone would have probably seen something or could have been involved in something, and they would have come forward by this point if they maybe had something to do with him leaving that area. But again, nothing is impossible because there isn't evidence that proves otherwise.
5: If Robert Fisher did have a ride, well investigators think he could have ended up
3: virtually anywhere. And you have to think, back in 2001, this is April, this is before 9-11. So if Robert Fisher, you know, was able to get himself out, whether it was on his own, whether he maybe had some assistance, whether, you know, who knows, but it would have been easy for him to, you know, not only get over Arizona's borders, but he could have easily gotten on an airplane.
2: This was before the TSA. This was before... Uh, the heightened security for travel. So the opportunity for him to travel around, to, try, to board an airplane and to fly anywhere in the country to, lead, to drive into Mexico uh, is definitely there. And you look at this and you say the prevailing theories are he could be living in a small town where he gets paid cash and he works he works as a handyman, or he could be living in a big town, and again, you're anonymous in a city of two million people, you could just very well be, um, you get lost in the shuffle. So it's hard to say without knowing. I mean, I'd like to go backwards and say, now that we've captured him, tell me where you've been. So it's it's sort of that the world is open to us at this
5: point. And importantly, Fisher had a 10-day head start on investigators.
3: They don't know exactly what happened in that 10-day timeline. You have to think back. The explosion happened on the 10th. The last they had seen Robert for sure in Scottsdale was on the 9th on that security footage from the ATM. And then Mary's vehicle was spotted 10 days later. So in that 10-day span, a lot could have happened. So I think that's part of the mystery, too. And if anyone has any insight or could you know clue in and let law enforcement know, What might have happened in those 10 days, I think they would have a better idea of where Robert Fisher is now, if he's anywhere.
2: Fisher is an outdoorsman and skilled in hunting and fishing. He's described as controlling, and if in a relationship, will likely be the one making all the decisions.
5: The FBI added Robert Fisher to its top 10 most wanted list in 2002, the year after the explosion, and he's remained on the list since. Wanted for unlawful flight to avoid prosecution, arson of an occupied structure, and three counts of first-degree murder. Fisher could easily be surviving in the wild or be your next-door neighbor.
2: He is of average appearance, so we ask the public to focus on the traits and behaviors mentioned to help in locating him.
5: Their wanted flyer notes, Fisher is physically fit and is an avid outdoorsman, hunter, and fisherman. He has a noticeable gold crown on his upper left first bicuspid tooth. He may walk with an exaggerated erect posture and his chest pushed out due to a lower back injury. Fisher is known to chew tobacco heavily. He has ties to New Mexico and Florida. Fisher is believed to be in possession of several weapons, including a high-powered rifle.
3: So over time, as you can imagine, a case like this will elicit tons and tons and tons of tips. And over the years, investigators have fleshed these out and ultimately... None of them have really led anywhere. At least, none of them that we have publicly known about had led anywhere of significance. But there was a few of them that seem almost too good to be true. Um, some of the more significant ones. Back in 2004, there was a man in Canada who matched Robert Fisher's description to a T. They had the same build. Robert Fisher had. An interesting gait because of a firefighting injury back when he was a firefighter in California and a scar on his back from that injury as well. And then he also had a missing, or he would wear a gold tooth where his bicuspid is. So this man in Canada in 2004 fit this description. He had the same back scar, he had the same build, and he had that a, a missing tooth where Robert Fisher also had a missing or gold tooth. So it seems completely uncanny.
5: This man looked so much like Robert Fisher that even some people who knew Robert were convinced it was him.
3: Investigators even brought in a neighbor at the time who brought it in and could have sworn that it was Robert Fisher. But ultimately, they, you know, used his remaining family members and the fingerprints of the man to ultimately determine that this guy is not Robert Fisher. So It's really crazy to think that someone could look just like that and have the exact same markings and, you know, to be in that scene and be found like that. He was ultimately arrested but ultimately let go because, again, his fingerprints and family members confirmed that he was not, in fact, Robert Fisher.
5: Another similar tip came in 2009, this time from out of the country.
3: They were in Guatemala and they were taking a photo and in the There was a man that apparently appeared in the background of one of the photos, and he approached them, and, you know, it was a hostile approach saying, I don't want to be in your picture. You know, I maybe was involved in killing before. So the couple, completely shocked by something like that, they reported it to investigators. Um, That photo has never been released to the public, but FBI has said they have ruled that this man is probably not Robert Fisher, And then another one in 2012, um, there was actually a raid at a Colorado home. Um, Other people were arrested. Originally, it was a Robert Fisher tip that led them to this home, um, but ultimately, he was not found there either. So the FBI and Scottsdale Police say, to this day, they get weekly tips on the Robert Fisher case. As we were interviewing the most current Scottsdale Police detective on this case, he got a tip that came in as we were talking. And... It's, you know, hard to think that there could still be so much interest generated in a case that's been this cold for this long, but you never know. You never know what small thing could be the thing that's the missing piece to the puzzle that could, you know, put everything in clear view for investigators. We want
2: to, uh, as investigators, we want to put the puzzle pieces together and we want to see what the picture looks like. We want to see how it ends and uh, when the pieces are missing, obviously, that... uh, that's incomplete, and we need that extra piece. So I'm always hoping that that next call is going to be the one that that maybe gives us that lead we were looking for.
3: How often do you get calls?
2: Uh, I usually get calls, if not uh, certainly on a weekly basis, if not almost daily. Still, um, everything that gets when the. Other programs rerun this show when um, the, the Robert Fisher, Where's Robert Fisher movie is out. Everything that, that uh, rebroadcasts, will get additional tips. Uh, I followed up on a tip this morning uh, about she, a caller believed he was, he was somebody that, did, that had done some work on her house uh, up in Colorado. So you take that and, and you run with them. So every day, um, usually, like I said, I'll get, I'll get two or three a week easily.
3: If Robert Fisher were to walk in the room right
2: now, what would you say to him? My first question uh, would be, I need to know where you've been. I need to find out what did you do. My, I am more curious about that 10 days in between. Where was he? was he? Was he right there in the woods? Did he see the police coming? Did he know his vehicle was going to be found? Those kinds of things. Where did you go once you left? Um, the house on the 9th we don't have any record of him between the april 9th and april 20th so to say where were you when you knew the entire state was looking for you um, and then get into the details obviously of the of the crime and what was your thought process with that um, which still has to be adjudicated if we if he were to walk in it there's an arrest warrant there would still be there would still be a trial there would still be a case that we need to prosecute so Uh, I would need to do a full interview just to say, okay, here's your opportunity to give your
3: side of the story. Do you think Robert is out there somewhere?
4: You know, 20 years ago I said, don't speculate. Uh, Today, I, I don't
5: know. This again is the Fisher's pastor, Greg Contelmo who talked about his relationship with Robert, Mary, and the kids last episode.
4: I remember initially a lot of people thought, well, you know, they found his car up in the, up in the woods and he probably call, crawled in a cave and took his life. That was how a lot of people thought. And I think that view reflects how we would feel if we knew we did what he did. So we, we project our own response. Um, how can a person live with himself Having done what he did, I have to ask, how can a person do what he did in the first place? How can you get to that point? And uh, so, is he still alive? I'd be really surprised, but he was, uh, he was an outdoor kind of guy. He was uh, an individualist, a survivalist. And uh, I could see him wandering into the woods and going up somewhere where nobody is. I, I don't know. I really have no idea.
3: Well, that's the thing. No one does. Yeah. Then, you know, what do you hope to see answers in this in your
1: lifetime?
4: Well, you know, I would love to have somebody reveal something and for him to be found and and uh, and, and dealt with uh, appropriately and justice, you know, enacted. But uh, I, I don't know if I'll ever experience that. But I, I, I would hope so. I hope somebody see something or if he is alive, uh, he comes forward. I, I don't know. Uh, there's so many possibilities.
3: What's the biggest question that remains for you?
4: It's probably the I was, I was going to say why, but that's not the biggest question in my mind. Um, it's more how, how could you how could you do that in, and live with yourself? How, how could you get to the point? because there, there's always a way through a problem. Um, there's always a way to to move without bringing more harm upon yourself and especially upon others. And so my question is just, Robert, how could, how could you do that?
5: 20 years after Mary, Brittany, and Bobby Fisher were murdered, after their Scottsdale home burst into flames, Robert Fisher remains the only suspect. And the search for him, the hunt, continues.
3: Investigations sometimes take a long time, even ones that seem impossible. I was living in Boston when Whitey Balder was apprehended, finally, after 16 years. He was also on the FBI's top 10 most wanted list, like Robert Fisher still is. And it was a tip from, you know, a daytime TV program. Um, someone watching saw it and said, wow, that almost looks like my neighbors here in California, and ultimately that led investigators to him 16 years later. So no matter how much time passes, you never know what little thing or what person might be seeing something at the right time to make it click and to you know, call up an investigator and say, hey, I have this. Not sure if it'll help, but maybe this is the piece that you're looking for. So even though it might seem a little hopeless and there hasn't been any new clues that have led to anything over the past two decades almost, it's not impossible.
0: For True Crime Chronicles, I'm Will Johnson, here with Spencer Brudig and Reed Redman, Reed, what a story uh, over the past two weeks you've brought us and uh, this case and uh, a manhunt that continues to this day. Uh, talk about the possibility that Robert Fisher could have died.
5: Right. We mentioned that possibility briefly, but it really does seem to be a realistic possibility that Robert Fisher, whatever his plan might have initially been, died, whether it was out in the wilderness or, or sometime in the two decades since. A related theory, as you've heard, is that investigators have considered that he took his own life. But what Detective Heinzelman told Erica Stapleton about that, and it's something I I found interesting, is, well, okay, why take all these other measures to evade capture only to change your mind and and decide at that point you don't want to go on the run and and take your own life? And and the way he sees it is there's a reason he took all of these different steps to evade capture. And as far as the broader investigation is concerned, until there is evidence that Robert Fisher is dead by, by any means, they're going to investigate as though he is alive and still on the run.
1: So, Reed, the thing also that sticks out is that uh, Robert really seemed to know what his next steps were, right? I mean, even the idea that he left no electronic trail. Can you talk more about that?
5: Yeah, we talked a lot about the physical trail that Robert left or the, the limited physical trail that. Robert left that kind of ended with his vehicle being found in the woods. But you're right, there wasn't much of an electronic trail either. And granted, this was 2001. You would expect a suspect to leave less of a digital trail than a suspect would today in 2021 when people are on social media and their phones all the time and, and all of that. Um, but Robert Fisher did have a cell phone it was shut off the night before the fire and never turned back on again to this day. Uh, there were no other ATM withdrawal attempts or anything like that as far as investigators know after uh, Fisher withdrew that $280, which is kind of a strange number. You wonder, you know, why not take out more? Maybe there was a bank limit, but if not, you know, if you're planning to go on the run, why, why only take out $280? But um, after that footage that seems to be where the digital trail ends. So we have the digital trail ending with that ATM footage, the physical trail ending when that vehicle is discovered 10 days later in the wilderness. And from that point on, it's it's just these theories.
0: There's also this mention from investigators that he's just kind of this average looking guy. And I guess that means there's not any sort of really obvious distinguishing characteristics. But they put out photos of what he would look like right today. First off, as far as distinguishing features
5: go, there are those few things we mentioned earlier in the episode. There was a gold crown on one of his teeth. There are surgical scars on his lower back, but those are things that are obviously pretty easy to cover up and hide in public. The one thing that would be more difficult to hide is that Uh, The FBI says he has sort of a unique walk as a result of a back injury where he stands up really straight and and puffs his chest out as he walks. But but yeah, other than that, investigators and people who knew him seem to agree that Robert Fisher just sort of looks like an average white guy. The FBI has, as you mentioned, released age-enhanced photos that our listeners can find in KPNX's coverage. But to be honest, I feel like I see someone who looks like the guy in those photos all the time, on the bus or at the grocery store. And I'm guessing that plays into why there have been so many tips and so many false alarms, unfortunately, over the years.
0: Spencer, I know you uh, have been reading, as you are wont to do, uh, delving into this case a little bit and his background. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, you know, after after he became the prime suspect in this case, they compiled this 400-page report on Robert Fisher. And there's some pretty interesting Things from his past. He actually uh, uh, tried to become a Navy SEAL. He was unsuccessful in that, but he did go through some Navy SEAL training, apparently. Um, he obviously was a, a very successful hunter. He knew the area. He he knew how to survive uh, for days, potentially weeks on end. Um, and and there's also some odd behavior that's reported from friends and coworkers. Uh, according to the report, he would randomly shoot his gun in the air to scare friends and family members when they were out in wilderness. Um, there are photographs of him uh, with blood on with animal blood on him. Now, mind you, none of these things are inherently crimes, but just you know they they were trying to get a better uh, picture of what this guy's behavior was like and there's definitely some oddities in that report.
0: All right, Reed, thanks so much for bringing us this story about Robert Fisher the past two weeks and of course uh, if anything does happen if there are any updates, developments, we'll let our listeners know. Be sure to check out our Facebook group Inside the Crime Vault for True Crime Chronicles. I'm Will Johnson along with Reed Redman and Spencer Brudig. We'll be back next week with a new case and a new story.